How Are You Feeling is recorded and produced on the stolen land of the Gadigal and Bidjigal peoples. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. How are you Hello and welcome to How Are You Feeling, a show where we navigate pop culture, news and politics through the lens of emotions. My name is Lungal and I am an Aries journalist and known bisexual. <laughs> Hi, I'm Danny. Ditto, except I am a Virgo, not an Aries. And I think that pelicans are the best bird. You know what? You're not wrong. They're the best. Lungal. Let's get started. Yeah. How are you feeling? What's making you anxious? Ah, okay. Quite a lot of attention has been given to white climate activists and climate activists in the West, right? Greta. (laughs) Yeah, shout out to Greta. So there's a lot of attention being given to climate activism these days, which is really important, but there's a lot more focus on white climate activists and activists in Western countries when, in reality, countries in the global South are suffering the most from climate change. So I came across a Medium article a couple of days ago with a title around environmental activism being a death sentence for people living in Latin America. And obviously I was very concerned and I read through it And, you know, the article stated a whole bunch of figures that I'll get to a little bit later. But when I pulled it up to discuss for this episode, I noticed that the article was deleted. Whoa. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And that, you know, was just a little bit concerning. And it wasn't because of the fact that it was false reporting, because I did manage to find the source the Medium article is based on. So it's a nonprofit based in the US and the UK called Global Witness. And they did an actual report into statistics surrounding activist safety around the world. And according to Global Witness, they're specializing in environmental and human rights research. More than two thirds of all killings of these activists occurred in Latin America. I just thought that was really distressing and very kind of disheartening that it wasn't being covered more widely. No, I feel like you'd only see that in medium. You don't see that in the mainstream Western press at all. Yeah, absolutely. And... It feels just a little bit unfortunate because a lot of people throw around the statistic that 90 to 95% of all surviving biodiversity is protected by Indigenous people. And the majority of climate activists in Latin America are Indigenous people. I don't know, I find it really disturbing that so many people are being killed for protecting their homes. And yeah, it made me kind of emotional when I was reading into it. And 
you know, it turns out that the two countries that recorded the highest rates of this happening were Colombia and the Philippines. So in the Philippines, I'm a bit more well-versed in the political climate there, so I understand that it's not just environmental activists in the Philippines that are being targeted, it's also people that are advocating for human rights and for less corruption and less, you know, authoritarianism. But part of the report found that, like, the highest um, number of activists recorded being murdered happened in 2019. So there were 64 people um, that were murdered in 2019 in Colombia alone. So that's like more than one person a week. So these would be you know? mostly indigenous peoples, right? Protecting their land from corporate interests, like what logging, um, like what kind of stuff are they going up against? Like the report said, like, try to make a distinction between not just environmental protection but land protection as well Mm -hmm. so it's you know from what i can gather it's just a lot of um disputes with mining companies Mm -hmm. as well as logging companies and i can only imagine that it's also water protection as well on top of everything yeah and also i guess they would have to come up against organized crime and the kinds of interests that play out in the region in that area as well. A lot of these are contract killings, which is really horrible. So some of them get caught up physically trying to protect their land and are killed that way. But some of them, they're being taken out by hitmen. Yeah, absolutely. Like... Um, a UN special um, rapporteur mentioned that, like, another reason for the increase in debts is the growth of paramilitary groups and private security forces and companies. So that's exactly like you were saying. They're very much targeted, and it's very politically motivated because these are people just trying to protect you know, their ancestral lands and waters, you know, natural resources that they've been living harmoniously for generations, you know. Mm, Where is the justice? Like, where is the state in protecting these people? It's such a joke, the lack of law enforcement and legal justice in this area. Like, what are they doing? And I know in... Um, in that region as well, it's a very dangerous place to be an activist in any kind of human rights movement. So there's been lots of instances of LGBTQI plus activists um, being murdered, of women's rights activists being murdered. And it's also really dangerous to be a journalist there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting that you bring up the state and questioning what they're doing in the context of all this, because... I feel like they're not being negligent, actually. I feel like they're either being complicit or actively involved in these, what can only be called assassinations, really. 
yeah, the entire situation is just very distressing. Mm. Yeah, and it's frustrating that these people are risking their lives and we never hear about it. Yeah. I don't know. It's easy to become kind of swept up in the activism in your immediate circles when, you know, in reality, there's so much of a collective struggle happening around the world. Yeah. And it's so easy to lose sight of that. Um, I mean, I've been... You know, super worried just as an activist in general, following what we discussed last episode about police, but also just how that impacts me as someone with a visa. But I have so much privilege in the fact that I'm able to participate in civil unrest and in protest because even though I'm not a citizen in this of this country, even though I don't necessarily have the rights of citizens in this country, I'm very much protected, which isn't always the case with other people trying to engage in the same activism I'm engaging with here. Yeah, I think it's definitely something that is taken for granted. Yeah, I just really hope that I don't know, this issue is just given a little bit more attention, which I know is hard in today's climate with an actual global pandemic happening. Mm. Um, and I think it's just really important that we kind of conceptualize the environmental movement as an anti-capitalist movement, you know, because a lot of the driving forces behind these murders are capitalist. You know, they are pr prioritizing profit. And um, yeah, yeah. Sorry to start off with a very <laughs> somber story. So, Danny, what's making you anxious this week? Well, from one really depressing story to another. We're currently experiencing a second wave of COVID-19 and the majority of cases and deaths have been in Victoria. And the majority of people dying have been aged care home residents. So having a grandma in aged care, this makes me extremely anxious for her well-being. But also the whole situation is ongoing there are still so many active cases who are people who have been infected in aged care homes so there's just going to be more and more deaths over the coming weeks and months and what's really upsetting is that these deaths were preventable in my view the tragedy unfolding in our aged care homes is a pretty insightful case study into how neoliberalism kills people. So first, we've got to go back. Let me explain. We've got to take it back to 1997 um, when the Liberal National Government, led by John Howard, brought in the Aged Care Act. 
which basically invited large corporations to come into aged care facilities and run them for profit. It reflects the peak neoliberal ideology of the time. Basically, the government saw a problem, that problem being the rapidly aging population that was becoming increasingly expensive to care for. They said, oh, we will open it up to the free market. So that is when all these huge corporations who previously had nothing to do with aged care came in and that's when so many of the deeply systemic problems started. Because these corporations, they want to run the facilities in the most economically viable way possible. You know, they're in it to make money. So they started building much bigger facilities. Previously, aged care facilities were small, maybe like 10, 20 residents. Now there's hundreds of people all crammed into the one building. And of course, the most expensive cost when it comes to running an aged care facility is staff. And so what they did was they fundamentally changed the way that aged care homes are staffed and the Aged Care Act allowed them to do this. So have you noticed how people don't really say nursing homes anymore? It's not really a term that we use. Yeah, actually, now that you've mentioned it, I've, at least here in Australia, I've never heard the term used. Yeah, we say aged care facility or aged care home. And the reason for that is in these privately run for profit aged care facilities, there often aren't any nurses working there like there would have been 30 years ago because nurses are expensive. So what these companies did was they replaced nurses with personal care attendants who only need six weeks of training. Oh my God. Yeah. Many of them are employed casually, part-time, with little job security, and they work between different facilities to make ends meet because they're paid hardly anything. And they, at the beginning of the crisis, like before this all started happening, they weren't even guaranteed pay if they had to take two weeks off to quarantine. So the fact that they, yeah, they couldn't take time, like paid time off. And the fact that they work between different facilities is what has been pointed to that has caused rapid spread of COVID-19 throughout aged care facilities and has led to so many deaths. So it's um, making me angry, but also really anxious because like I said it's ongoing and we're gonna see more and more people die in the coming weeks and in the coming months so many vulnerable people who should have been protected they should have been safe from COVID-19 in an aged care home but so many of those people are now going to die and I'm just really heartbroken thinking about those people who are mostly women I would say there is a gendered aspect to aged care mostly women um they're dying without their family there to hold their hand 
And it's just, it's so upsetting because if these systemic issues had been addressed, their deaths could have been prevented. Oh my god. These deaths are the legacy of the Age Care Act, 1997, and they are the legacy of a neoliberal policy which puts profit above people. Which is a theme, I think, in the things we talk about. (laughs) Yeah, it's almost as if all problems are rooted in neoliberalism and late-stage capitalism. Who would have thought? (laughs) Shocking. That's so... That's so horrific. I didn't even realise the extent to which this was an issue until you brought it up. And yeah, I can't imagine what it's like, especially because you do have a relative that is reliant on, you know, this inherently flawed system. Yeah. It's just very upsetting. Um, And my grandma's facility is locked down. It has been since the second wave started to take hold. So we haven't really been able to see her um, at all. And she has a lot of health issues, one of which is dementia. And the thing about people with dementia is if they have a loss of stimulus. So for example, one of us would visit her every couple of days, but now that's gone. So she doesn't have that stimuli which means that her cognitive decline could happen more rapidly. Yeah. And once that happens, she's not going to gain it back again. So, yeah, it's been really hard. Um, And also there's a Royal Commission into aged care going on at the moment. Um, The interim report came out last year, was titled Neglect, which basically summed up what the contents of the report was oh my god because uh, these staff they're stretched so thin so there is an over-reliance on medication to basically restrain people with dementia chemically oh no clearly is a human rights abuse also, videos of residents being beaten emerged, <gasps> being physically restrained, um, just really shocking instances of neglect and abuse. So it's very hard having someone I love in a facility and not being able to visit and know what's going on on the inside because I do know that she's in a well-staffed, well-resourced aged care home but then I think what about all the vulnerable people who aren't what about all the people who are in aged care homes where they don't have a registered nurse where they don't have enough staff to make sure that they get the care that they need yeah it's it's so frustrating I feel like This pandemic has done so much to highlight so many of the pitfalls in just everything. Yeah. 
I think uh, ageism and disability discrimination as well is so tied to capitalism and the kind of rhetoric we have seen throughout the pandemic, um, particularly at the beginning, was, well, some people's lives just don't matter as much. Some people are just necessary collateral damage to get the economy going again. And those people are the ones who, you know, can't be part of the economy. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting if you look at childcare centers, like if what is going on in aged care homes happened in childcare centers, it would be totally different. Like, it, well, it just wouldn't happen basically because, yeah. you know, children are seen as having future economic potential. Old people, yeah. the opposite. Yeah, that's that's such a good point. I never considered that. And I still can't believe that there was such a systemic overhaul of the way an entire... I don't want to call it an industry, but that's the only word that's coming to mind. Like, the way an entire industry operated to, like you said, put profit over people... Yeah. And um, there are also allegations that people who were high up in the private aged care um, industry pushed John Howard. Oh, my God. To pass that act. But the thing is, it's been successive governments. You know, we've had labor governments since then who haven't made any changes. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of it comes down to, like you mentioned, just discrimination on the basis of age and, like you mentioned, gender as well, and also disabilities, because what you mentioned about a lot of people writing off the potential deaths of people that aren't quote-unquote economically useful in the bigger picture is just so heartbreaking because I've been involved in a lot of disability activism as well and It's just so heartbreaking to see how time and time again, not just federal, but state governments have just gutted funding to essentially look after the well-being of an entire group of people. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, not to go on too much of a tangent, but I think it's really important that people realize that disability isn't something that you know is either you have it or you don't you know it's a lot of disability activists say you know everyone needs to come to terms with the fact that eventually you will become disabled because that's just what happens when your body grows older you know you start needing more assistance you start needing a lot more resources to look after your well-being 100 percent. 
Fun fact on that, one in four people over the age of 85 are diagnosed with dementia. So if you're like living into your old age, there's a good chance you're going to need quality care. And the reality is it's not available for everyone. And that is a really poor reflection on our society, I think. And I think it's also worth examining what disability is. Because at the end of the day, people are considered disabled when they can't contribute to the economy in a way that's deemed valuable. Yeah, that is so true. You know, I grew up in um, a fairly conservative household where we just didn't really have the understanding of disability, right? So I definitely internalized all of this ableist rhetoric, but as I grew up and I started to realize that I had a lot of chronic issues and illnesses, I started to realize, oh, well, I am technically disabled, but why am I considered to be disabled? And it's because, oh, I can't go to school and study for eight hours for five days a week like everyone else, Mm -hmm. you know? I can't sit behind a desk for eight hours and do the same thing over and over again for five days a week. And that just boils down to how useful you are to capitalism. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. How depressing. Yeah, I think what I came, I've come to a realization because I was thinking about it and I was like, what would it take for all those who need it to be able to access quality disability and aged care and I was like we have to demolish and reconstruct the entire like socio-economic political fabric of so-called Australia that's what it would take yeah absolutely absolutely and I just think it's really important that we focus our attention on the fact that these are people being affected You know, I find that a lot of politicians love to stick to numbers and statistics about, you know, oh, like, we had 7% of people die, but that's great because 93% of people lived. But 7% is still too many. You know, those are actual people that died. Those are actual people that suffered in a way that they really didn't need to. Yeah, that's what I found very shocking certain politicians saying well you can't compare our aged care COVID deaths statistically to other countries because we've done so well with COVID-19 so really it's not comparable like saying oh 70% of the COVID deaths in this country have been aged care home residents yeah it sounds bad but in the grand scheme of things it's not that bad Oh, I hate that. (laughs) Uh. Very depressing. Structural change is obviously needed. Let's move on. Longel, what's making you angry? Um, Coincidentally, something that does require a lot of structural change as well. So um, 
there has been a massive national response to Vic Roads trying to build a new highway through the Jaburang trees. So these are trees that are incredibly sacred to the indigenous people to that area, tens of thousands of years old. Hmm. And these trees, they're birthing trees, aren't they? So they're very important um, to Aboriginal birth practices. Yeah, like countless generations of Aboriginal people were born under these trees and they're being threatened because people want to shave 10 minutes off their commute. I read that it was two minutes. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah, no joke. Yeah, so what's making me angry is just the fact that the Victorian government, they're just not being held accountable correctly. They they were taken to court and an ombudsman found that they were acting in good faith. They're alleging that they consulted with the Aboriginal people of the area when in reality said consultation wasn't very in-depth, wasn't consistent over a long period of time. was a sham consultation, basically. Yeah, and I'm just furious because I have no idea why this country has such a blatant disrespect for its First Nations people. Yeah. I um, I saw that on the same week that the Environment Minister, Susan Lee, or Suzanne Lee, <laughs> on the same week that protection was denied for the Jabberong trees, heritage listing was granted to a telescope. You're joking. I'm not joking. And I think it says a lot about what is valued as culturally significant in this country. Absolutely. I just, I have no idea why something like a telescope could hold more meaning than a group of trees that have literally witnessed the births of so many generations of people You know, like, this is an area that is sacred. It's not just important, it's sacred. And it's heartbreaking to me, not the, like, not just what's being done, but what has to be done by land protectors, you know? Like, people shouldn't have to set up a camp and have people from all over the country driving down with supplies to make sure that their land isn't exploited and abused. And uh, it's, it's just so aggravating to me because a friend of mine, a really close friend of mine, actually did a whole bunch of fundraising on her own um, to put a whole bunch of resources together, like groceries and supplies, and then she and a couple of mates drove down to the Jabbering Embassy to, you know, help with the community there. And I just think it's ridiculous that this is what needs to be done for the government to pay attention. Yeah, 
But a telescope is protected automatically because similarly to what they say about the Captain Cook statues, it's a symbol of science and inquiry. That's so disgusting. (laughs) Must be celebrated. Uh, Like, don't come for me, um, the telescope community. Like, your work is very valuable. (laughs) But I I just feel like it's so blatant that so-called Australia not just disrespects but actively antagonizes you know the people this country actually does belong to and the people who've been looking after this country for thousands of years and yeah that's just making me very angry (laughs) What about you, Danny? What's been making you angry? Uh, well, a recent plan which has come out from the government, which is going to mean that uni students who fail get their funding cut. Uh, basically, you know, in Australia, Everyone, in theory, has access to HEX, which is the system which enables students to be able to pay for their education, to pay for their degree once they start earning money and can actually pay for it. So the government gives you a loan so that you're able to get through your degree. I guess, you know, making a university education accessible for everyone. But this proposed policy would strip students of government funding and loans if they fail half of their first year subjects. So if they fail half of their subjects, it means they would no longer be able to access the Commonwealth supported loan program. And they would have to pay the full cost of their studies upfront, which would be thousands and thousands of dollars making it a whole lot less accessible so when I saw this it made me angry because it seems to me like this will affect disadvantaged students the most those coming from lower socioeconomic backgrounds from rural areas who are moving away to the city for the first time and for students living with disabilities. Like it seems like to me, those are the people who are gonna be hurt the most by this policy. But what Education Minister Dan Tian said to justify the change is that it's about helping to support those failing students and making sure that universities engage with them. And if there are special circumstances as to why they have failed and they put forward those special circumstances, the universities have the right to be able to say, oh, yeah, look, we understand. Hmm. I don't know about your experience, but in my experience (laughs) at university, when I went to the university and said, look, I have these extenuating circumstances that were out of my control, there was more than one time when they said, too bad, and I failed. (laughs) Absolutely. I... (laughs) 
I can a hundred percent relate because as someone who's registered with the disability services at a university and I have access to all that support and I have a disability students advisor to help me out, I have still been in many situations where the university wasn't sympathetic at all. Yeah. <sighs> um <laughs> the university that I went to I will not name, but they have this rule, this fit to sit rule, which was introduced oh. while I was there. And basically what happened was I had a mental health crisis, didn't submit my essay. Then I did submit my essay, maybe like a week late. And I went to doctor, got a medical certificate, submitted it. And they said, yeah, but you you submitted the essay before you submitted the medical certificate. So therefore, the medical certificate is invalid and you fail. Yeah, it's, it's an absolute joke. As someone who goes to the same unnamed university, it's... I have had such a terrible experience with university administrators there was one semester where I just just had such a terrible health deterioration at the end of the term, and I failed all my courses. You know, I failed all three of the courses I was enrolled in, and, you know, it essentially ruined me. <laughs> like, to this day, I still haven't quite recovered from the consequences of those failures, even though what happened was completely out of my control and wasn't a result of anything that was my fault. And it took me so long to not only have those grades struck from my record, but to also get a refund for the fees I paid for it. And I should note that my original application was denied. So I literally had to go and find someone at the university who was experienced in writing these applications to help me submit a new application so that it could be approved. So not only is this university just notorious for not really caring about their non-able-bodied, neurodiverse students, but they make it so incredibly difficult for them to try to get any form of help, assistance, or justice. I just distinctly remember, wow, I'm so lucky that I had access to people that could write this application for me because yeah. I had lost thousands of dollars, <laughs> and if I didn't have these people to write this application for me, th then I would never have gotten it back. Yeah, this idea that the universities have discretion, and if there are extenuating circumstances for that student who has failed half of their subjects in first year, that an agreement can be come to and they won't lose their funding and we can safeguard that that's a joke that's not a reality like definitely I think with both of our experiences 
with university administrators that would just not be the case. Um, And it was funny, the government cited a couple of really extreme cases to try to justify this change. Someone who had enrolled or started dozens of courses, racked up hundreds of thousands of dollars in student debt and didn't actually end up getting a degree. (laughs) Oh, no. But whoever that person is, they are in the minority. And from the stats that I've looked at, which came from ANU, most students who have a high failure rate in first year have a sudden onset of mental illness or a severe financial problem. So it seems like this measure will do nothing but apply additional pressure to students who are already experiencing disadvantage. And that makes me very angry. And I just want to add that this isn't just two students angry with the university they went to. There has been a widely circulated open letter that's been put together by the Disabilities Officer of the National Union of Students that's being signed by hundreds of students across the country saying that this these proposed changes will do nothing but affect further harm. So this is, as we were saying with our previous issues, a very systemic issue. They're trying to prevent students from doing subjects that they're not suited to, as they say, or that they have no business doing. But I don't think this is going to make much of a difference because university is so ingrained as a necessity we're told in order to get a job in many industries you need a degree so I can't imagine that this would actually be a deterrent I don't see how it would work and I think it's really important that you know we also consider that a lot of these students don't experience a monolith of circumstances that make it easy for the government to justify taking action like this. Yeah, which is what they've made it sound like. Exactly. Like, I've recently just gotten, like, diagnosed with ADHD, which makes so much sense in the context of why I failed so many courses. And this is a process that took me four years to get to. You know, like people's experiences with trying to understand their health on top of trying to keep up with the issues of living in a pandemic and trying to support themselves financially and all of these stresses is just, it's non-linear, it's very messy and it's really unfair for the government to expect for it to be so straightforward when it isn't yeah it's very frustrating the government doesn't care about education (laughs) truly doesn't dan just i have so many bones to pick with him 
like his entire restructuring of how degrees should be funded. Yeah, of course, because this is part of the major university shakeup, which also includes plans to double certain degrees that aren't seen seen as needed. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. You know, like arts degrees, because we don't need that stuff. <laughs> yeah, they're completely irrelevant. Why did we bother getting them? I don't know. Now I just have all these thoughts in my head, all this theory, and I have nothing to do with it. <laughs> oh my god. But anyway, moving on. Longol, what is bringing you joy? Okay. So, this has been a very heated episode so far. So, I'd like to end on a very positive note. And that positive note is season two of The Umbrella Academy on Netflix. I am such a huge fan. I fell in love with season one. I thought the series was incredibly well written. It was, it had spectacular actors. Like the acting was so good. Can you tell me about it? Because I just know that that Irish guy and Ellen Page is in it. Okay, so Robert Sheehan. Yes. I am in love with him. He's good <laughs> looking. There, yeah, we'll get, we'll get to him a little bit later. So, Crash Course on the Umbrella Academy. Sometime in 1989... All of a sudden, women all over the world found themselves pregnant. And they weren't just pregnant, they were nine months pregnant and about to give birth when they hadn't been before. I know, right? Insane. So they all gave birth, and this mysterious billionaire went and collected seven of these children to raise as his own. And he called them the Umbrella Academy because these children were spectacular and had superpowers. This series follows all of these people in 2019 when they're all 30 and they're adults and they're just so dysfunctional and it's so chaotic and their powers are like so random. They're not like the Justice League where this one can fly and this one can fight well and this one has a lasso of truth. One of them's super strong. Another one can throw knives really well. (laughs) And might I add that this billionaire was so fucked up that he didn't name any of these children. No, no. Their names are numbers. So, like, there's number one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven. And Ellen Page, my homegirl, is number seven. And I, you know, We love a queer icon that's actually queer. And I have loved everything Ellen Page has been in. I didn't Uh, love Juno. Okay, well... I don't want to get into that, but yeah. Yeah, everything I've I've watched that she's been in. I haven't watched Juno. Um, I thought she pulled off a heterosexual woman very well in X-Men. A good actor. You know? Yeah, she's so good. So... This series was so good in season one, but you'll mention that season two is what's bringing me joy. And that's because when season two was confirmed, I was like, look, I'm so excited. I love season one. But what if they screw it up? What if it's very bad? Because that has happened before. Sequels can suck. This is true. 
And this sequel did not suck. It delivered in so many ways. It's... I struggle to find what my favorite part about it is. One of the things in the running is the soundtrack and the music. There was... I'm not going to put any spoilers out there. But there was this one iconic scene in season two to a Backstreet Boys song that should not have worked. I love it that way. I love what you did there. (laughs) It should not have worked, but it did. And I'm not going to say more, but when you watch it, you're going to understand what I mean. The music was incredible. The acting was just so good. Aiden Gallagher plays number five. So his entire arc is that he can, his parts, he can like teleport through time and space. So he accidentally got caught in the future and then he's... Happens to the best of us. Yeah. (laughs) And he's 58 years old now. So then, yeah, so he comes back, but now he's a 58-year-old man in the body of a teenager. So he is played by an actual teenager and the talent, like, I never really enjoy watching you know content with child or teen actors in it because they aren't very good but Aiden Gallagher is so good he's easily a highlight Ellen Page just like they all just do so well with their characters and the Mm -hmm. character development is so masterfully done in season one I personally didn't like any of them But then again, the world was ending, so they didn't give me time to like them. In season two, they shifted the format a little bit. They shortened the episode, so the pacing was a little bit better. Mm -hmm. And they invested in the characters. And I just loved them so much. So I highly recommend Umbrella Academy to anyone who hasn't watched it. I also highly recommend you watch fan edits on YouTube. I have been watching on repeat Vines as the Umbrella Academy, where they just put a whole bunch of vines and caption them as characters, and it is the funniest thing on the planet. <laughs> I, I just like to state for the record that I was never really into Vine, but. Me neither, but I spend all my time now watching Vine compilations on YouTube. <laughs> Wow, we're so behind the game, but we love it. So, yeah. Danny, what's bringing you joy this week? Well, mine is also TV related. What's bringing me joy is that for the first time ever, Disney Channel has outright confirmed the bisexuality of a main character. Yes. That is all I can say. It's all we need. The show is called Owl House, and it's a fantasy series focused on the adventures of an average girl who unknowingly stumbles into a magical world. Ooh. Oh, I love that. I love it so much, and it makes me so happy because I really wish that there had been representation of bi and pansexual characters for me to look up to when I was younger. Absolutely. 
Yeah, 10 years ago, I mean, there wasn't much in the way of gay representation at all on Disney Channel. So my first memories of bisexual characters would have been on sitcoms. Because, you know, I watched a lot of Friends, a lot of Sex yeah. City. It was like my whole life. Um, and those representations were misrepresentations, to say the least, which basically left me throughout my whole teenage years thinking that bisexuality wasn't real. Literally. And can I just add to that list an unexpected addition with Glee. Glee had a very specific episode where Blaine was like, I don't know, maybe I like girls too. And Kurt was like, no, you can only like men or women. There's no in between. And... I can guarantee that's what convinced me I was gay for so long. <laughs> right, right. That's the thing. that I recall it on Will and Grace as well. My mum watched Will and Grace, which is, of course, about like a gay man and a straight lady. But one of the main characters is a gay man. And he also straight out in multiple episodes across multiple seasons, he denies the existence of of bisexuality and I want to play you this clip from Friends because I was thinking about it and this little joke in Friends was so deeply ingrained in my psyche and I've just never been able to forget it it just it messed me up oh my god yeah you ready sometimes men love women and sometimes men love men and then there are bisexuals, though some just say they're kidding themselves. Oh my god. Yeah. Ha ha ha. Bisexuals are the butt of the joke. And that stayed with me for so long. <laughs> Literally. I, I'm just so happy for all the little bis out there. Yes, I am so happy for all those baby Gen Zers. Like, I feel sorry for them for a lot of things. Climate change, wage stagnation. They're really going to have it rough. But they have a bisexual main character on Disney Channel. Yeah, and for once, I'm not going to go into how awful Disney is because this is a representation I needed when I was a little baby. And... It's just so, so good. Yeah. Because, like, this is about representing by people in narratives that we aren't always represented in. Like, hello, a fantasy world she stumbles into. How good. If only um, I could afford Disney Plus and could watch this. <laughs> Oh my god, I have it. You can watch it on mine. Oh my god, thank you. I'm so excited. I'm just <laughs> yeah. gonna like pretend I'm 12. Because honestly, if Lizzie McGuire had been bisexual, that would have changed my entire life. I'm not exaggerating. Oh, if Ryan from High School Musical wasn't forced to be a heterosexual man, my life would be different. Okay, can we talk about that for a second? High School Musical Absolutely. 2, so much sexual tension between Ryan and Chad. The baseball scene where Chad's all like, I don't dance, and they're playing baseball. Clearly, it's like, it's coded. He's saying, I don't do gay stuff. Like, that's that's what's going on. That was clear to me when I was watching it when I was 12. I was like, yeah, I know what's going on here. Then, the next movie, 
Ryan is paired up with the other Kelsey. gay icon and they're a couple and you're like, no. <laughs> like, okay, I have to be 100% honest. I haven't really watched all the movies because my parents thought they were too gay. <laughs> so... <laughs> Growing up as a teenage boy, I wasn't allowed to watch Disney princess movies or High School Musical. However, I did manage to sneak a couple of scenes and Ryan was my dream. I didn't want to be with him, but I wanted to be him. I wanted to have the fabulous outfits. I wanted to be the most talented man there. Come at me, Zac Efron. And I I wanted to... I can't sing. Literally. And I wanted to just be... Such a good dancer with Ashley Tisdale. That is all I wanted. And then I was like, oh my God, maybe I am like him. And then he was paired up with a woman and I was just like, okay, maybe I am like him. So yeah, it is a travesty. Yeah, it's very upsetting because I had a similar experience with the character Kelsey I was obsessed with her. I started learning how to play piano because I wanted to be like her. Disney, you have a lot to answer for. So thankful that you're coming. You truly do. My God. Um, thank you for listening. We hope you had a great time, and if you want to get in touch with us, hit us up on Instagram and Twitter at hayf pod and subscribe and rate us five stars please yes we're on spotify and apple podcasts and some other ones (laughs) yeah wherever you listen to podcasts we're there we are there leave us a review let us know what you think we love feedback especially if it's nice bye bye how are you feeling is hosted and produced by us Danny Stewart and Longol Burkina. Editing and sound design is by Danny Stewart and artwork by Indiana Johns.